Welcome to the Helping Families Be Happy podcast, where we explore the often messy world of family, love, and relationships. I'm your host for this podcast, Christopher Robbins, the co-founder of Familius, husband, father of nine, author, fly fisherman, backpacker, and aspirational musician based in the Central Valley of California. We hope to bring you nourishing, real-life information about love, family, relationships, and life. I'm happy to introduce today's guest. Rebecca Fox Starr. Rebecca Fox Starr is an author, writer, blogger, speaker, and mental health advocate. She created her internationally read blog, Mommy Ever After, in 2010, following the birth of her first child. When she became pregnant with her second child in 2013, Rebecca suffered from prenatal anxiety and depression and subsequent severe postpartum depression. She decided to document her journey in real time in an effort to help others. Rebecca writes candidly about her life as a mother, survivor, advocate, singer, songwriter, dance partier, and studded shoe collector. Her story has been featured in the New York Times, Huffington Post, and on ABC News, and in all forms of media across the world. She is the author of three books, Baby Ever After, Expanding Your Family After Postpartum Depression, Beyond the Baby Blues, Anxiety and Depression During and After Pregnancy, and the picture book released in March of 2022 by Familius, Mommy Ever After. Rebecca lives and writes with her husband, daughter, son, and three dogs in the suburbs of Philadelphia. More about Rebecca can be found on her blog at www.mommyeverafter.com and on social media outlets at Rebecca Fox Star, spelled R-E-B-E-C-C-A-F-O-X-S-T-A-R-R. Today, we're discussing maternal mental health, which falls into the familiar talk together and heal together habits. You can learn more about the familiar's 10 habits of happy families by going to the Habit Hub blog on familias.com. Now, welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you have three dogs. We have one dog. Tell us what breeds are your favorite and and why you have those. So I have to be honest. I think I have neglected to update my bio. Sadly, we have two dogs now, but Lola, our first child dog, is always with us. And she's a, she was a Yorkie. She was 13. She passed away during the pandemic. We have an Australian miniature Labradoodle named Crosby. And we have a, another little Yorkie named Georgie. Her name's Georgia, but we call her Georgie because, you know, you're a musician as well. They're all, they all have names related to either song titles or musicians, and um, they're pretty awesome. I assume Crosby is from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. He is. And Georgia is, you know, Georgia on my mind. And Lola was the kinks Lola. <laughs> well done. That's wonderful. Thanks. Okay. Well, let's talk about maternal mental health. So, What does that mean? Help us understand. So maternal mental health is just mental health, feelings, emotions, diagnoses, but for mothers, for those who are trying to conceive, pregnant, or have children. Okay. So that's very clear. So why did you start writing about mental health? I mean, we've we've explained a little bit about your your blog and, and your own anxiety and depression, but let's maybe go deeper than that and how it's helped you. Sure. It's actually been the greatest gift of my life. As much as it was hard to suffer from those afflictions that you mentioned, I feel very lucky that I have the opportunity to share. When I started the blog Mommy Ever After in 2010, 
I had my first child. I felt like motherhood was wonderful, but also hard and weird and overwhelming. So in a very small, limited way, I actually started blogging about mental health just without any mental health issues, without any real diagnosable issues. I just wanted to speak really honestly about motherhood. And then when my son was born in 2013, I would say graduated from having, you know, that difficult period of time after you have a baby where you have the blues or you feel a little bit tired, sleep deprived, overwhelmed to having severe postpartum depression, which was different and new and scary. And four months in after receiving help, after having tremendous support, I started to turn a corner And in doing so, I decided to share, as you mentioned, in real time on the blog, the fact that I was going through postpartum depression in that moment. And it was a really strange decision that I made. I thought to myself, am I really going to come out with the fact that I have a mental health issue? And this was 2013, 2014. And I know it sounds silly, but the landscape was different. People didn't talk about mental health the same way that they do now, not as openly not as compassionately. I didn't know anyone who had had postpartum depression that I knew of. So I barely knew what it was. I just had a vague sense of what it was. And I said to myself, all right, this might change things for me. Parents might be scared to leave their children at my house. People might judge me, but if I can help one other woman to feel less alone, it's worth it. And sharing has been, as I said, the greatest pivot and and ultimately gift in my life. So let's talk about just the aspect of writing about your journey in mental health. Has the aspect of writing been therapeutic for you and how? Absolutely. Something that I can look back on in hindsight, a real tell for anybody who was following me at the time, because to tell you the truth, my blog and reach really expanded after opening up about postpartum depression. But even back then, I had somewhat of a following. I stopped writing when I was pregnant. I had written blog posts almost every day for three years, and then I went quiet. And I think that that was a real sign, a real indicator that I wasn't doing well. So actually starting to write was the most healing thing that I did. And over the course of the next several years, as I crawled out of that hole of anxiety and depression, I knew that if I got that feeling, feeling down, feeling nervous, feeling depressed, writing was the greatest therapy. I think it allowed me to process things. I think that I was able to use words as a way to understand what was going on in my own psyche. And for me, writing is how I connect with people. So finding people to connect with was incredibly healing. That's a a very incredibly powerful human experience to feel less alone. And for me, opening up and using words and writing on all different spaces and all different places was one of the most healing things for me. And that's why I continue to write. Good. Now, just to add a little bit to our blog, uh, to our podcast here, um, Finless recommends the book Expressive Writing for Healing by Mary Potter Kenyon, published by Finless, a wonderful book that really explores and helps people know how to use writing as a therapeutic medium. So that's, that's wonderful that you're able to find that on your own and that you've helped so many other people experience this journey. So let's talk, what's happened over the last, since 2010, that is making it easier for people to discuss mental health? It's funny because I do think that as treacherous as 
the landscape of social media can be. There's also something that's pretty amazing about the exposure because now people are used to sharing things about their lives and it's become easier, sometimes even attractive or desirable to say, here I am, I'm going to be vulnerable. Come look at me all throughout the day. I'm going to chronicle my life. And I think that we as a culture in a good way have become desensitized. So if somebody says, I have anxiety, most people are going to respond with like, so do I, or I know what that's like, or I know somebody who has anxiety because people are just talking more. They're talking more and connecting more because we're all so much more connected. And I know like as a parent and you're a seasoned parent, and for me, my daughter's almost 13. So it's tricky. And social media is definitely a tricky kind of place and thing to navigate. But I'll tell you that school curriculums have changed. Books like the ones that we've done together and the other books that I've written have come out more and more and more. When I started writing about postpartum depression, my first two books were academic texts. There was not a big list of books on postpartum depression. And there was no book on trying to expand your family after postpartum depression. So I wrote it because there was nothing there. Now there is a much greater catalog, as you know, and you've obviously published the wonderful books from Karen Kleiman, who is the authority figure on maternal mental health. And she runs the postpartum stress center actually here outside of Philly. People are just using these honest expressions so much more widely. And so it's not the thing that has to define you. You can have anxiety and also be a great soccer player and somebody who loves the Simpsons. It's not just that you're a person with anxiety. Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing up Karen Kleiman. For our audience, the book that Rebecca's referring to is, is Good Moms Have Scary Thoughts. And it's a wonderful book because it adds uh, graphic images to show what moms are really feeling and thinking when people ask them, how are you doing? And they say, oh, it's the best moment of my life. And it's a really important book. And she followed that up with What About Us, which is a book for uh, couples after, <laughs> after they've had their child. So let's move on. Thank you. So let's talk about your book, Mommy Ever After. How does that relate to mental health? And why was that book important for you to write? It makes me well up with tears to even talk with you about it because you were my dream maker with that book. It is so personal to me and so important to me because I was a mom who loved, I am a mom. Back then when I was struggling, I was a mom who loved motherhood, who loved having children, loved my children, and things were hard. And I think that like you just said, there's this culture that promotes you're doing great. Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this the best time in your life? And employing dialectical thinking there saying, this is the best time in my life and the hardest time in my life. I love my kids. Motherhood is hard in this moment. Being able to hold two equally true things at once was really essential for me to understand. So that's why we have mommy ever after, because I, in the refrain in the book, it says, they lived mommy ever after because I'm not always going to be happy, but I'm always going to be your mommy. Because truthfully, everyone has negative feelings. And just like it's in the book, negative feelings come. We don't have to pretend that they don't exist. We need to be resilient and know that we're sad or lonely or scared. But just like storms, they, these feelings pass. We're not going to feel this way forever, which is a really important message to drive home. 
But for me, Mommy Ever After is this whimsical book with the most gorgeous illustrations. I feel like I can say that because I'm not responsible for them. Sarah Ugalati is brilliant. And she turned these words into the most beautiful pictures and illustrations. Children can look at this book and say, I love this. This is beautiful. There's a mermaid and there are trees with their favorite things growing on them. But what you're really driving home as parents read this story over and over, this is a hard thing. We all have hard things, but you can do that. And no matter what, we're still together. I might not be happy all the time. You're not going to be happy all the time. I still love you and we'll get through this. So that's the message behind that. Well, it's a good message. And we, of course, look forward to the books, the book touching many people and helping them. And it's wonderful to be able to have those different generations have a better understanding of that life is filled with ups and downs. So let's talk about just mental health. What do you wish that that our audience understood better about mental health and the misconceptions that might surround it? One thing, it's normal to not be okay all the time. It's not only acceptable, but it's really brave to admit when things are hard. For me, a real turning point in my story, a real place where I found hope was 10 days after my son was born. And he just turned nine last week. So it's a strange phenomenon. This time of year is exactly the time of year that I had him and I was going through all of this. So it was November 4th of 2013. I got a text message from my husband and he said, are you okay? I see the light going out in your eyes. And I cried because I was emotional and I cried because it was true and I felt seen. But I also cried because he gave me the permission to surrender, to admit that I wasn't okay. And being able to say, I'm not doing well right now and not having to hold it all together was crucial in my well-being and in my healing process. So I think it's important for people to, to know it's normal. It's expected. I mean, I'm talking broadly about mental health issues of all kinds. For moms in particular, 25% of moms or 30% of moms are diagnosed with a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. That's diagnosed. Most women, many women, I should say, fall through the cracks, aren't screened, don't admit to how they're feeling because that's normal. It's normal that you want to just pretend that things are okay. It's something by normal, I just mean statistically average. I don't mean that it's okay. And I think that it's something that we all feel. And if we can just admit it and destigmatize it, I promise you, you are not alone. And then the second part to say what, what I would like the audience to, to think about is what I said before. It's not always going to feel this way. I am not depressed anymore. I have little bits of worry sometimes. I don't have diagnosable anxiety. I have no depression. And I have, sometimes I get anxious about things, but I don't have anxiety, anxiety. I don't have to seek therapy anymore or take medication anymore, which are two things that were lifesavers for me, literally. but. I don't need it. I am proof that you can get to the other side. And I think it can get very bleak, very, very bleak and very dark when you're suffering. And so I remind myself on a regular basis when I'm feeling yucky, I'm not always going to feel this way. And it's very therapeutic. That's important. Thank you for sharing that, particularly about destigmatizing and helping people understand that they can talk about it. We encourage our audience, if anyone is experiencing, acute anxiety or debilitating depression to make sure that they get proper professional medical care to help them as they navigate this one of these life challenges. 
So let me ask you another question. So I just participated in a funeral of a best friend, and I was thinking about what people say to the family of a, of a loved one who's passed away, and some of them are just, they're just not helpful. Do you have two or three things you can think that, that if someone says they confide in us and let us know that they have depression, that they have the significant anxiety, what can we say to be helpful? I'm sorry for your loss, first of all, to you, but also I'm sorry for, you know, if you're saying you're giving condolences to someone, but for someone with depression, validation is important. We talk, you know, you mentioned, I'm going to reference Karen Kleiman's book again, but it's kind of a message against this toxic positivity of I'm really sorry, or this is a really tough time and saying, it's okay. It's okay that it's not okay. So saying to somebody with depression, this too shall pass. Some I say that, I know it's a cliche, but someone said that to me and it stuck with me when I was feeling really low. So saying, this really is hard or I'll be here. We don't have to even talk here to just sit with you while you go through this or to say it will get better. You know, something along those lines, like that's the, I think under the umbrella of this is temporary. So whatever you want it, whatever words feel authentic to you. And then the validation of this is really hard and you don't need to say, you don't, let me answer the opposite of your question, but instead of saying, you're fine, you're going to be fine. This is great. You're doing great. I think normalizing these negative feelings is something that is a gift that we can give ourselves and the people that we love. And so for somebody who's lost someone saying, I'm so sorry, that must be so devastating. Can't imagine what you're going through, but I know that time heals. Maybe the person will feel seen and feel like they can accept how they feel and therefore heal from how they feel. Well, that is helpful. One of the things I've heard is is when people experience loss, and I, and I think depression is falls into that, is to show up and shut up. You know, be there, willing to listen. Any advice that you would give family members who are watching someone go through depression? So showing up is key. I think that. For me, I believe that support is the key to success. And I've done a lot of research on postpartum depression screening and diagnosis. I'm not a clinician, but I've done a lot of research and written academic books on this. And it's amazing the studies that have been done about support to someone going through postpartum depression or mental health issues. To use business terms, somebody who reaches out to a friend once a week, the return on investment is so great. You have a 30% less chance to experience depression or to sink down into a deeper depression just by being checked in on. So I think that saying to someone, I see you, I'm here for you. And then, you know, in my situation, I was smart. I was educated. I had insurance and medical care, and I still kind of fell through the cracks in the beginning. And I don't think I knew to ask for help. So advocating for somebody in your life, I think is really important. And sometimes this is something that's actually really important. A lot of times people who are going through, especially a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder or postpartum depression, they are thinking that they should feel better or that they're a bad parent for feeling the way that they do. And they'll say, no, I'm okay. Look for signs in the person you love that show maybe they stopped writing, like how I stopped writing. I didn't say I'm suffering, but there were clues. 
I think just like you said, in those cases, show up, annoy them, bring it up to other family members, ask for help, bring up to their doctor, bring it up to them. Because I've always said, I'd rather annoy a friend and overstep and make them annoyed at me, but not miss something. They'll forgive me. I'd rather them get frustrated and think that I'm like aggravating. I don't want to miss something. So I think that's one situation in which you can overstep. And then also just helping out without it being a big production of like, I'm going to do this for you. Just dropping things off, dropping by, cleaning up a sink. I know it sounds simple, but it's one of those really helpful things. Yeah, I I agree with that. I, I found that saying, how can I help you is not as helpful as just helping. We had a, when my wife was in the hospital because the twins were being born prematurely and then she was on bed rest there to keep them as, so she could hopefully deliver them to term, which she did not. I came home and I found that our neighbor <laughs> had done our laundry, had done all of it. And we didn't ask for that. She just came in, did our laundry. That was a really wonderful gift. So being able to show up and act rather than have to ask somebody what you can do for them is important. Let's, let me, let, let's close with one, one more question. For those of us who are in the book world, what do you hope that the publishing industry and the book industry can do to help improve mental health awareness? I think continuing to produce daring, bold, helpful content. I assume that if you as an author or someone who's writing is thinking about it, you're not alone. So coming up with ideas, like for me, a a book about postpartum depression was kind of an easier sell. People knew about it. Trying to write a book about expanding your family after postpartum depression was much harder. It was much more niche and the different options. And so in writing that second book about family expansion, I interviewed 10 other women and they each shared their stories about how they expanded their families or why they chose not to and how that was a valid choice. And it allowed me to amplify those voices. And I think that continuing to amplify voices of those things that are typically only kind of whispered about is a wonderful thing. Just supporting writers, buying books. I know it sounds so silly, but we would be nothing without words and books. So being able to support writers, I say this as an author, but as also, I was an English major and I always said, I'm a reader, not a writer. So I love books, but I also really happen to love Familius books. They're they're sitting all over my house. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. We appreciate that. Well, it's wonderful that we could spend this time with you, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to speak with you and have you share your story and help others with their own challenges. As we conclude today's podcast, I'd like to thank Familius for their support in bringing the podcast to your ears and your hearts. We'd be thrilled if you subscribed to the podcast and left us a review on iTunes and social media. And when you're ready for that next amazing book adventure, we'd be honored if you chose a book from Familius. One step at a time, we can make the world a happier place. 